This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. Well, I, there, we're now living in a pretty divided age. There's not many things that seem to unite people on the far right and people on the far left. One of the few things that seems to unite everybody is that almost everyone is unhappy with the big tech companies and the social media companies. You want to see Elizabeth Warren and Steve Bannon stop fighting, uh, put them at a table and ask, what do you think of the big tech companies? What do you think of social media? And they may have different reasons as to why they're so upset about uh, Facebook and Twitter and the other big tech companies, the other social media companies. But needless to say, their opinion would be negative. Well, um, a lot of the criticism of these big social media companies has focused on something called Section 230. A lot of people have called for its repeal. A lot of other people say it should be reformed. But what is it? Well, we are very fortunate this morning to have on with us the gentleman who knows Section 230 better than anybody and who's something of an expert when it comes to free speech in general, both the free speech of 200 years ago and of uh, 200 hours ago. Jeff Kossoff is an associate professor of cybersecurity law at the United States Naval Academy and an author whose latest book is The United States of Anonymous. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks so much for having me. So, Jeff, I'm going to talk to you about the United States of Anonymous and the idea of anonymous speech in a second. But I, I want to get you to explain, if I can, what exactly is Section 230? Uh, this is one of those things where I feel like the people who rail about it most almost understand it the least. What is it? What's its history? And what's the rationale behind it? So uh, the history of Section 230 actually starts, I think, within your uh, listenership area uh, in Nassau County, New York, and on Long Island. Uh, they There was a court case, and this is involving companies that now, when I talk to my students, they've never heard of, uh, called Prodigy and CompuServe, which were the first big ISPs and online services. And uh, this was so. This was in 1995, and what the what happened was there was an allegedly defamatory post on Prodigy, um, and so Prodigy gets sued, and the judge says that Prodigy is just as liable as the person who posted it, uh, this def allegedly defamatory comment, because Prodigy had moderated other comments. So the idea was that if Prodigy had done no moderation, it would have received First Amendment protection that would have really limited its liability. But because it actually engaged in moderation to make its services more family friendly, it faced more liability. So Section 230 was actually passed by Congress the next year in 1996 to address that problem. And what it basically says is that regardless of whether you moderate or don't moderate content, uh, if you're an online service, unless a, a narrow exception applies, you won't be 
uh, treated legally as the publisher of user content. So basically what Section 230 says is you can sue the person who posted the content, but you can't sue the platform where they posted it. So um, if I'm on this radio station, for instance, and I say something crazy, I say something defamatory towards someone, I say something that's malicious, slanderous, untrue, uh, the radio station that I'm on can get sued. But if I do it on Twitter and make those same comments on Twitter or Facebook, Facebook or Twitter can't get sued. That's basically the the difference between how radio stations, newspapers are treated versus how social media companies are treated. Is that right? Well, sort of. So um, to the extent that a newspaper or uh, a radio station has a website or any other online service where people can post comments, they're covered just as much as Facebook and Twitter by Section 230. Um, and I mean, frankly, Section 230, when it comes down to what it frequently protects, it's actually in court opinions, it's actually more often smaller platforms that uh, get sued quite a bit often by businesses about things like reviews or employee complaints, things like that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the the idea being that the Internet is really a multilateral communications media, medium. So uh, the reason why uh, terrestrial broadcast uh, station would not get Section 230 protection is that you're not having contributors from all over the world. Um, anyone uh, just sort of go, come on and post content. Uh, but for a website, they, they do that. And the idea is one, one of the reasons for Section 230 is to encourage moderation while not while giving flexibility for platforms to build their business models around user generated content. So when a, a bigger social media company like Twitter or Facebook makes decisions about what content should be permitted, uh, obviously one of the more infamous examples, especially with our audience, was the uh, Twitter decision to restrict posting of that New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop and everything related to that right before the election. They're making a choice to be an editor, and this is one of the things that I know libertarians and conservatives have railed about, about the Section 230 uh, protection. Once they make that decision to moderate, as Prodigy did in the pre-Section 230 world, why then are they not subject to legal liability from people that want to take issue with things that individual tweeters or individual Facebookers could write? Yeah, so I should uh, I should probably just give the disclaimer that I'm only speaking on my own behalf and not on behalf yes, of the Naval Academy or DOD. Uh, of course. I, I mean, so Section 230 is really intended. So uh, the ability to moderate content, um, that's protected not only by Section 230, but by the First Amendment. So um, the, this is a fairly well-established uh, right for newspapers uh, that, you know, a newspaper can't be forced to publish uh, letters to the editor from opposing viewpoints, that sort of thing. Uh, the reason what Section 230 does is it, it maintains that First Amendment ability to moderate content. But what what it does is it removes the disincentive that was there for moderation because of that prodigy case in Long Island. 
So uh, the the idea is that you know yeah the platforms are are free to make make their decisions even if they're bad decisions and I'll, I and the the platforms have made a number of very bad decisions and uh, also they've made a number of decisions that might be more reasonable if they were more transparent about why they made the decisions uh, but. The idea is that you know we we want to be able to give the the platforms the ability to say you know this is what we think is appropriate for our services and the idea behind Section 230 is very market based that you know if you don't like that a platform is moderating too much or too little that you can go somewhere else uh, that that's been somewhat problematic uh, as the platforms have grown so much because. Um, at least for the largest platforms, you often don't have many alternatives. Uh, that said, if you look at the growth of TikTok in the past year or two, uh, you'll see that uh, that there there always is room for mar market uh, changes. And I mean, what one thing that I love to see there was a, either Forbes or Fortune back around 2007 had a cover story about MySpace, basically saying, will anyone ever be able to catch up to MySpace? <laughs> and we, we, we know the answer to that. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, we did a segment yesterday about um, where the struggles that the streaming services are going through right now. And uh, some of us were wondering if Netflix is going to be the new new movie pass or the new MySpace, uh, which was one day once thought to be unbeatable and inevitable and now uh, is uh, sort of a distant memory. Uh, by the way, I want to mention if people are interested in learning more about the history of Section 230, uh, you wrote a, a terrific book about it, which I've read and which was very educational called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. It's available on Amazon or at uh, jeffkossoff.com. That's K-O-S-F-E-F-F.com. So um, a lot of the calls for repeal of Section 230 have had to do with enhancing free speech. I am a very big free speech advocate, I've cautioned, and I think this is partially as a result of reading your book and other material that you've written, that my concern about repealing the Section 230 protections would be that it would actually lead these big tech companies to clamp down more strictly on what was permitted on social media. Is my concern about a Section 230 repeal a valid one? Absolutely. Uh, if I mean, it's basic legal and business sense that if there's a protection from liability for risk and you remove that protection and you increase the risk, then businesses will respond accordingly. They all have lawyers. Uh, I, I'm a lawyer and I mean, if I see the risk increase, I say, okay, well, what is it really worth it to have user content? And one example is that Section 230 was amended for the first time in its history in 2018 to deal with uh, sex trafficking and prostitution. So basically they carved out another exception to Section 230 to, because there were some really horrific cases where there were platforms that were being protected. Um, and what happened was because of the way that the statute was written was that uh, you saw platforms very quickly remove things, not not just things that were used to facilitate prostitution, but for example, Craigslist eliminated its personals ad section altogether. Mm. 
because they said, you know, we, we can't handle the risk of all of this uncertainty. So I think that's a bit of a microcosm. Uh, I mean, that was one narrowly targeted exception. But if you get rid of Section 230 altogether, um, at at that point, a platform is going to say, okay, well, if something might be defamatory, uh, are we going to take a risk in keeping it up when that means we might have to go to court and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on litigation defense? No, no. I mean, that one example would be Yelp. So, I mean, Yelp's uh, process right now is that, you know, they'll remove reviews if they're threatening or have privacy violations, but they don't adjudicate factual disputes. And for someone like me who goes to Yelp, I I go to Yelp for the negative reviews. I want to see if a business that I'm Mm. thinking about patronizing has negative reviews. Um, Without Section 230, a business could just go to Yelp and say, this is incorrect. You have to take it down. And if you don't take it down, we're going to sue you. And then Yelp is on notice and Yelp has to make the decision about whether they're going to take it down immediately or leave it up and defend the case in court. And I I mean, I don't want to speak for Yelp, but I don't think it would be a sustainable business model for them to defend defamation cases all the way to trial. Uh, So they would probably have to take down the, the reviews, in which case Yelp would become filled much more with five star reviews. And that's not terribly useful. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Jeff Kossoff. His new book is called The United States of Anonymous, and it deals with some of the important aspects of maintaining anonymity when it comes to speech. We're going to, we're going to talk about the book in a minute. Last question on Section 230, though, Jeff, is what are some alternatives other than a repeal that you think might go a long ways towards furthering the cause of free speech and a vibrant dialogue on the internet rather than hinder free speech? Or is there nothing that can be done from a regulatory perspective at this point? Well, so we we run into the, if your goal is to increase speech online, and I'm going to say I speak with any member of Congress or staffer who wants to talk with me, and I'll say half of them share your perspective. But I will say the other half share a very different perspective, as you alluded to at the beginning of this uh, interview, where they believe the platforms allow too much harmful content and they want to see more moderation. So I think part of the problem is you don't have a consensus about Mm. what people want the Internet to look like. and then on top of that, how you get there, if you, if there is a consensus that we want to have more speech online, um, it's difficult to do that because, again, you get into the First Amendment issue where the platform, uh, unless the First Amendment gets radically reinterpreted by the courts, uh, the platforms can't be forced to carry the speech of other people when they, they, when they don't want to carry it. So I, I think there's not all that much you can do with Section 230. Uh, I, I mean, I think fostering new platforms and new business models uh, is a much better way because then you might not be as reliant on a few large companies. But I, I mean, I think that that that's a more constitutional way to deal with it than basically forcing mm-hmm. a private company to carry certain speech. Talk to me about your book, The United States of Anonymous. You deal with the importance of anonymity when it comes to free speech. Why is anonymous speech so 
important. I know, I think I speak for a lot of people that are even minor, minor public figures. And there's nothing more frustrating when than when you see this anonymous Twitter troll or somebody with a made up email address, uh, totally taking something that you've done or said dramatically out of context, and then trying to spread the word to everybody from the masses to your bosses about why you're such a horrible person and could be taken off the air. They get protected through this veil of anonymity. And uh, a lot of the folks that want to, you know, defend me or, or the other hypothetical personalities that we're, that are, that I'm referring to, they end up using their name. Why is anonymity as frustrating as it might be so important when it comes to free speech? So anonymity is really central to the entire history of our country, going back to Thomas Paine, who published Common Sense anonymously, uh, to when Hamilton, Madison, and Jay were writing the Federalist Papers to urge ratification of the Constitution. They didn't want their names associated with the Federalist Papers, so they they signed it as Publius. I mean, it, it, it's so fundamental to our history of being able to make an argument that is separated from your name, both for safety reasons, legal reasons, and also for the impact of disassociating your identity with your speech. So the courts have given strong but not absolute protection. So if you, in your example, if you were uh, defamed, if, if a court found sufficient evidence of defamation and, there, and you sued an anonymous poster and issued a subpoena, um, even if the person moved to quash anonymously, uh, you, if you had a strong enough case, the, the, the bar is very high. And the reason for that are these First Amendment values. Now, I mean, I'll say that uh, I've had the same things, especially since Section 230 has gotten into the spotlight. I've had some horrible things emailed and posted about me anonymously. But I'll also say, especially recently, I've had some really horrible things written about me and posted about me by people under their real names. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, I, and my experience, there, there are some sites that, that it's their prerogative to require real names. So Facebook, for example, uh, Nextdoor, and I'm on both of those. And I will say that um, those are not bastions of civility. <laughs> so so uh, I, there, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens under people's real names, but also, there's a lot of anonymous speech on the Internet that, frankly, just could not happen if people use their real names. Things like uh, it, one of the most common situations is employees who are post who are whistleblowing on their employers or warning people, you know, don't work here because it's a terrible workplace. That's done anonymously because they, they have no other option but to do that. What are uh, is anonymity in the Internet age in danger at all? Is that why you felt the need to it, it reiterate the importance of anonymous speech? Yeah, it, it is in danger. And because because the First Amendment does protect, provide strong protections for anonymity. But uh, one thing I like to remind people is the First Amendment restricts government action. So it re restricts Congress from passing a law requiring real names or using a court subpoena because that's a government action. Uh, but it doesn't restrict purely private uh, unmasking. And more and more of our data is controlled by companies, by data brokers. They have facial recognition data. They have our geolocation data. And the United States is so abysmal at uh, regulating 
compared to really the rest of the world, that uh, come, people can freely buy this information. So it's harder. That's one area where it's harder to be anonymous. So we really do need an effective national privacy law. The other issue, and we've seen, we saw this come up uh, just yesterday with the Washington Post article about TikTok, is that oftentimes uh, people might assume that they're anonymous or pseudonymous, but uh, there's enough information about them that's out there that's publicly available that someone can, and there, there are a lot of instances where this happened, that someone can uh, basically piece it together. And uh, that's what we saw with this uh, Taylor Lorenz story yesterday. And, but is there, uh, just to play devil's advocate here, is there a danger of instituting too many protections for anonymous speech? Because the, the I understand what you're saying, that there are some safeguards against uh, saying things that are defamatory against someone. But what about the era of doxing in which we're living in, where uh, people's personal information or uh, personal contributions or uh, anything that they may not want known to the public is released through an anonymous internet user? Don't those people, the people that are seeing their privacy violated, don't they deserve some protection as well? Well, they do. And I, I think that uh, the one thing I urge in the book is for people to, when they're operating anonymously online, to um, be to be aware of what data is out there about them and how it could be connected to them so they can't be doxxed. Um, there's a debate going on right now about whether the Washington Post article constitutes doxing, and my view is that it really frankly depends on what definition of doxing you use. I think the it, it was legal. I mean, the Post had every right to publish it, but I'm, I was a journalist for seven years, and I think there's a much more interesting journalism ethics debate about that. Um, but if but but ultimately, it's really hard to stay fully anonymous. And so in your example, if there's an, an, an anonymous person doxing people, then there's a chance that that anonymous person who's doxing people will eventually be unmasked as well. I see. Gotcha. No, well, that makes sense. Uh, talking with uh, Jeff Kossoff, his latest book is The United States of Anonymous. The idea, I referred to uh, Twitter or internet trolls earlier, the idea of trolling anonymously to sort of heckle anybody or make comments about some political entity or some media personality, that's not a new one, is it? No, no. And in, in, I start my book out uh, talking about the letters of Junius, which uh, were, were written to a London newspaper in the 1700s that basically, I mean, I, I consider Junius to be the OG troll. Uh, he <laughs> used all of these operational safeguards, like having other people copy his letters before he sent them to the newspaper and have, have the drop-off locations changed. And to this day, there's no consensus as to who Junius was. There's a lot of suspicions, but um, he was incredibly clever. I mean, it's better than any trolling that you see on Twitter these days. But, I mean, it, it was one of the main factors in the prime minister stepping down. Um, the king, it infuriated King George III, so much so that the publisher of the newspaper stood trial for seditious libel. Um, so, no, this is – I mean, this is, we, we have – a very, very long history of trolling in various forms. Uh, the internet perhaps makes it more 
pervasive and in your face, but it's it definitely was not born of the internet. While I have you, I can't avoid the temptation to ask you about what's happening with Elon Musk and Twitter. A lot of people, especially on the right side of the political spectrum, are looking at Elon Musk as sort of a free speech savior if he is able to be successful with his uh, takeover of Twitter. A lot of other folks and sort of more libertarian minded, they like a lot of what he and uh, and some other folks, including even Jack Dorsey, ironically enough, have had to say about the idea of decentralizing the internet. Is Elon Musk going to be the free speech or the decentralization savior that a lot of internet users think he will be? Uh, if no, uh, if he ultimately were to own Twitter, I think that the issues are far more complex <laughs> than, than uh, at least based on his public statements, how, than, they, than they seem. I mean, I think he could make some changes that would increase uh, certain types of speech or allow certain users back on. And that would be one thing. But I, I think that um, one thing that people forget is that a platform like Twitter has thousands and thousands of tweets per second. It's not like you have a CEO sitting in an office uh, leisurely thinking about uh, how, whether to allow each tweet that gets flagged. I mean, this is, you have moderators, you have AI, you have all, and you're doing it at a, at a really fast pace, and you need to keep your platform usable because so much of what gets moderated is spam or it's abusive. Or, and to just say we want free speech, yeah, I mean, I think that that's good. I'm I very much support free speech, but uh, there there will always be a certain level of moderation just to make it a useful product. I mean, if you were to get rid of all moderation, uh, people would leave your service pretty darn quickly. So um, I, I think he could make changes to it. And I, I think there are policies that definitely uh, would likely be changed. But um, but I also think that there is, there's going to need to continue to be moderation based on just consumer demand. A lot of folks on the leftward end of the political spectrum, they have looked towards antitrust as a way of reining in some of these excesses of big tech companies. Do you see that as a viable strategy at all? Uh, so I'm not an antitrust expert, so I'm probably not the best person to ask about that. I, I think that the problem is that I, I don't know, based on the remedies available in antitrust, I'm not sure exactly... Uh, how that would fix the issue that you sure. just have certain platforms that people gravitate to. I mean, it's the economic theory of network effects. And I, I don't think you can very, I mean, people talk about, you know, do you break up Facebook and Instagram? I mean, I guess I don't see how that really addresses any of the issues though. Now, uh, no, that's fair. And, and finally, speaking of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the, the, a lot of them tend to rely upon these algorithms. Can you speak to, without saying whether that's good or bad, how those algorithms affect, uh, because especially we have a lot of older uh, radio listeners that may not check Twitter, Facebook, Instagram every day, and they may not understand how that algorithm affects what people see in their newsfeed and what sort of posts they see. Are you familiar with how these algorithms work, and can you enlighten us a little bit? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's basically the the way that uh, content is presented to you. And it's not, I, I mean, there's all, often a nefarious, immediately nefarious implication of algorithms, but just like content moderation, I mean, it, it it's part of what makes the platform useful to people. Um, I, I mean, the alternative would be sort of the very early days of just entirely reverse chronological uh, social media, which uh, some people might prefer. But um, I mean, it's based on a variety of things, including often uh, your personal information that gets collected. Um, and so it'll target certain content to you. And there's been a lot of uh, legitimate criticism about you know, is harmful content more likely to be targeted at people uh, based on the information that the platforms have? Uh, I think one one area of reform that I don't think is discussed enough gets back to privacy law. So you avoid a lot of the First Amendment issues by saying, okay, instead of saying that you can't uh, use algorithms because that's a First Amendment issue, you instead say, you know, you can't gather certain types of data and use it in certain ways. And I think that would really address some of the concerns about harmful content being targeted at people. It it is funny, just anecdotally. I I have a a Facebook group for listeners of this show. It's super small, especially in the grand scheme of things. It's only, I think, 2,600 people. But having to be the moderator of this small little Facebook group has given me a new appreciation for what Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and all these companies have to go through. Because when we first started it, I would just allow posts on everything. And then before you know it, people are uh, filling it up with spam. I said, okay, well, I guess I got to remove those. Then people are using it to make all sorts of political posts that have nothing to do with this radio show. I guess I should remove those. People are slamming the other hosts that I'm not talking about. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm having to institute an approval process, which I never wanted to do. So I, I think what, even if it's Elon Musk, he may find uh, the crown a bit heavier once he has to wear it and he has to make a lot of these content moderation decisions. But uh, thank you for what you've done on behalf of sticking up and giving a little historical perspective to anonymous speech. And thanks for helping us understand Section 230 a bit better, Jeff. Thanks so much. Uh, The book is called The United States of Anonymous, goes all the way back to even before uh, Thomas Paine with the history of anonymous speech in America. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead.